Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. To quote the words of my guest today, Diana L., AA is the center of my life. I would give up everything, except I have to have AA. It keeps me sane. It gives me structure, a sense of purpose. It teaches me about myself. It gives me fellowship. When I first met Diana on a London AA Zoom meeting almost a year ago, the humility of that sentiment had me listening carefully every time she shared in that weekly meeting. I intuitively knew that such a heartfelt love for the program usually occurs only after a particularly difficult road to sobriety. That's how it was for Diana. It took her more than 10 years, fraught with multiple relapses, to finally anchor her current sobriety date in 2011. To save her own life, she got a sponsor, read the big book, worked the steps, went to meetings, prayed, and fulfilled her service commitments. Her love of AA was a natural result, as was her tenacious and ongoing commitment to the program. So, pour a cup of tea, have a biscuit, and enjoy the next hour with my AA sister from Great Britain, Diana L. My name is Diana and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Diana. Thanks for being here today. It's afternoon where you are and it's morning where I am, so that must mean I'm somewhere in the U.S. and you're in the U.K., am I right? That's correct. Yes. I'm in the east of England. I've never been there. My wife wants to go. In fact, we're planning, I think, for a couple of years from now to go to, to England. And during this time, you and I have known each other now for probably going on maybe nine months, six to nine months, because we go to one of the same Zoom meetings together. Yeah, I think it's probably a year because I joined the Came to Believe meeting almost straight away. Yes. And I think you were already on it. That was the end of March. Yeah. So we're coming up on a year already. That's amazing. Yes. The thing I loved about that group when I first went there and made me feel really good was the fact that they incorporated that little meditation on the St. Francis prayer at the end. Mm. I remember coming away from that very first meeting feeling really kind of relaxed and peaceful. And I thought, what was there about that meeting? And then I realized it was that little meditation at the end that just tied everything together. Yes, I agree. But I also think that Verta and Julie, yes. uh, I think they just sort of sprinkle a lot of calm and they somehow give out this wonderful you know, feeling of being very, very calm and they're very still. Yes. But at the same time, their faces are quite expressive and they share very clearly. So yes. it's a lovely combination. And I love the fact that in that particular group, there's all different levels of sobriety. There are people with yeah. many, many years, and yeah. then yeah. there are people with months. And then there are, we do have some members who have put together some time, even during this COVID, and have slipped and come back. So that's encouraging, I think. It's always encouraging to see people come back, because yeah. that tells me that it's not much fun out there. No, no. <laughs> and and also, I like to see people coming back because, you know, when you get used to seeing the same person and then suddenly they vanish. Yeah. You know, the first thought is, I tend to think the worst. Yeah, yeah. 
So coming back, they're obviously not, you know, dead in a ditch somewhere or in a hospital or, or worse. I kind of agree with you on that. Uh, whenever I stop seeing somebody for a while, sometimes it's because they're just going to another meeting at the same time. And I'm always grateful for that. It's unfortunate whenever I hear about somebody slipping and coming back, but I'm always glad when they do. Mm. Certainly being able to go to a meeting with the same people over and over is important. How long have you been sober? What's your sobriety date? Well, actually, Howard, God willing, uh-huh. tomorrow will be 10 years. Oh, my gosh. Tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yes. goodness. Oh, <laughs> 10 years. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. I I sometimes wonder, how did I get to 10 years? But, of course, I know how I got to 10 years mm-hmm. through all of you, through everyone yeah. in the rooms. My goodness. So on March 5th of 2011, what was going on that made you come into program at that or stop drinking on that day? I relapsed on that day. Relapsed from how long? I re- Just for 36 hours. Oh, my. Yes. I actually came into the rooms in September 2000. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What was going on, on to make me relapse nearly 10 years ago? I remember it was bitterly cold and mm-hmm. I'd agreed to go and visit a friend for lunch and she lives in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go because um, she wasn't in AA, mm-hmm. uh, but she was a very good friend, a former drinking partner. I see. And I was very anxious about meeting her in her own home. Mm -hmm. I felt my sobriety was quite vulnerable, Mm -hmm. but instead of phoning my sponsor, asking for help, Mm -hmm. I went, I just went, and I met her in her home for lunch with her husband, and and that's how it happened. And something else was going on that day. Um, I was not feeling at all well. Mm-hmm. I hadn't gone to the doctor. I should have yeah. gone to the doctor. I've been mm-hmm. feeling unwell for months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of people pleasing going on, a lot of my isms going on, worrying about what people would think of me, mm-hmm. worrying about turning down an invitation at the last minute, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. worrying about going to see you know a doctor, which always made me feel ill at ease anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I I look back and I think that's such alcoholic behavior, the people pleasing and the low self-esteem and being afraid of, you know, what people are going to think if I if I don't do what they expect. Yeah, it's it's universal, isn't it? I mean, I I see that not only in myself but virtually everybody I know in the program mm. that that we get my self-esteem or my feelings about myself from the way I see other people treating me and I'm always worried that they don't see me the way I'd like them to see me. Does that does that make sense? Well, I always wanted people to like me better than I like myself. Sure. And I get I got very anxious if I felt I wasn't presenting myself in the right way. Sure. You were not feeling well before that visit to your friend's house. What else was going on with regard to your program at that time that may have put you at greater risk? It was very shaky. Yeah. I'd come into the rooms 10 years before that, mm-hmm. so September 2000, mm. and I had relapsed in that period of 10 years three times. Okay. Uh-huh. And I'd had a sponsor. Uh, but she sort of disappeared, um, and mm-hmm. then I never got another one. Mm-hmm. I wasn't following a program. I wasn't mm-hmm. doing the work, but I always 
got to meetings from the very first day hmm. I came into the rooms. Mm-hmm. I got to a daily meeting, sometimes twice a day. I did service. Sure. I coasted along on fellowship, really, for 10 years hmm. and messed about. But I just loved the fellowship. Mm-hmm. But I think it was lazy. I was lazy. This is something that came up in my, you know, mm. my step four. I was lazy about doing the work, putting the work in, making the effort, that, that final commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a tough thing to do when you first come into the program, but I can imagine along the way getting comfortable with the other aspects of the program to the exclusion of the actual work that needs to be done. That sounds like what happened to you. Yes, it is. And I was, I hadn't been paying attention to to chapter five, half measures availed us nothing. Huh, huh. So with me, it was, I was having a wonderful time with friendship, with fellowship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I loved what I heard in the meetings because I was learning about myself. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed doing service. It mm-hmm. was a way of getting me into the meetings, yes. getting me in the middle of the bed, as we say. Yeah. But somehow it didn't spill over into actually doing the work because it it takes effort and commitment and discipline. And I wasn't prepared to do that. How did you feel when you were in the program and were noticing other people around you doing the work and let's say moving ahead with the quality of their program? Uh, Did you feel a little uncomfortable knowing that other people were doing the work and you weren't? Or did you not think about that? No, I... There was a lot of guilt, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, and a lot mm-hmm. of uneasiness, and in a way, a sort of dishonesty, really, mm-hmm. because I'm turning up at meetings and presenting myself and doing service, and and yet I knew that I wasn't putting in putting in the work. I wasn't making amends. I wasn't looking cleaning my side of the street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I'd done steps one, two, and three, and then just stopped, mm-hmm. and then gone to step 12. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, I looked at other people. I liked a lot of a lot of them, what they had, the quality of their sobriety, but I did feel uneasy yeah. with myself. I, I knew that what I was doing was, it was dishonest, actually. Yeah. I understand that feeling. I spent the better part of my first year in the rooms, not doing the work, listening to other people who were doing the work, I was feeling like I wasn't getting anywhere, and I was still feeling miserable while other people seemed to be moving down the road. And I, I love the fellowship. Mm-hmm. I like the meetings. I like what was being said. Uh, I was okay with the book. I was okay with, you know, the, the steps. Yeah. But part of the problem was that I didn't have a sponsor during that time, so I didn't have any real accountability. Did you, when you first got mm-hmm. sober in 2000, did you get a, a sponsor right away? Yes, I did. And I had a sponsor for about two years. Uh-huh. I relapsed once in that period. I see. And then after the two years, it's interesting what you said about feeling miserable. Yes, I had long periods of really quite, quite severe depression. Yes. Not disabling because mm-hmm. I was getting up, I was going to work. Sure. But yes, I felt miserable a lot of the time and resentful. And I hadn't really because I hadn't addressed my, you know, my step four and I wasn't working the program. Was there any particular resentment that was that was looming that was seemed to be the big reason why? I don't think the resentments were the reason why I I didn't work the program, but right. because I 
I wasn't doing the work. Yeah. All these alcoholic characteristics, you know, the resentment and the anger were just welling up all the time. But there were one or two resentments, mainly around family stuff. Yeah. And it didn't necessarily have to be anything big. Right. You know, I could I could feel resentment about somebody making a completely harmless remark at work. Right. And I would sort of run with that resentment. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I was I was sober, but I was a dry drunk. Mm. Your sponsor during that first two years after your slip, did you go back to her as your sponsor? Yes, I did. And so what kind of things did she have you doing once you came back from the slip? I'm afraid to say I, I can't remember. Mm. And I don't think there was any plan. Yeah. We didn't make a plan. Hmm. Okay. So until you got sober in 2011... You had a total of th- three slips. Did you have any, during that period, did you have any periods where you felt like you were being accountable to either a sponsor or to people in the program? Yes, I did. What did that look like? This was the woman who brought me into the, my very first meeting. Uh-huh. And she'd come into AA six months before me. Hmm. She lived in the same block of flats as, as I lived in at that mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. So we hadn't been drinking partners, but we'd seen each other. We recognized one another as we were always drunk and oh, yeah. stumbling across one another mm-hmm. late at night in the, in the corridor of the flats. Mm-hmm. So she came into the room six months before me mm-hmm. and she kept on coming down to see me. You know, mm-hmm. we'd share a cigarette, we'd have a smoked a cigarette together or a cup of coffee and I'd be drinking, of course. She'd have a coffee. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant because I recognized the change in her. You know, talk about um, attraction, not promotion. Mm-hmm. She never once proclaimed AA. She just told me that she was in AA mm-hmm. and left it at that. And then after six months, I- I'd come back from a, a three-day bender, really. I'd been away. Mm-hmm. And I-, I came back and I carried on drinking. And I was really at a rock bottom, I think. And that's when she said to me, do you want to go to a meeting? Hmm. And that was the beginning. And and in a way, I was accountable to her over the years. And I did turn to her for guidance. So there was always a steady, consistent support figure in my life. Mm -hmm. I've had sponsees over my years of sobriety that I was close to, and whenever they had things going on, I would take a look at their program with them and look at the steps. And if the person was having a lot of difficulties and so forth, and they'd never done a fourth step or were hesitating to do a fourth step, I would say, have you worked on your fourth step? Or have Mm -hmm. you worked the steps on this particular problem? And always tried to tie it back into where they were in the working of their program relative to the problem that they were having. And I was never really too um, heavy or strict with them about, you know, trying to force them into doing the work, but suggesting to them that they do the work. Did she, what was she like with you whenever it was you were talking with her and she knew that you weren't doing working the steps or had you convinced her that you were? What, what did that look like? Oh, no. No, I was always honest with her. Really? Always. Yeah. No, yeah. no, she's a very inspiring character. We're still in touch, and um, although she's moved up to Scotland. But no, she would 
ask me, you know, meaningful questions, and she would address my my problem and then talk about the program. Yeah, she had a very strong belief in her higher power,、mm-hmm. and she always would, you know, tell me you've got to look for guidance,、mm. and she would encourage me to pray on it and ask for help from the higher power. But she would also look at. You know the steps with me,、mm-hmm. but not in a very structured way. And I never asked her formally to be my sponsor. She,、hmm. at that time, had a sponsor、mm-hmm. who, you know, was really sort of twenty-four-seven. And、oh, I、yeah. used to piggyback off my friend's sponsor sometimes.、Uh-huh. So you know, when my friend said you've got to do a gratitude list or an unmanageability list,、uh-huh. or she would tell me what her sponsor had told her, I would copy.、Mm. But it was all a bit.、Um, my head at the time, I wasn't willing. I didn't have the willingness to to follow a more structured, daily, consistent program. So it sounds like she was suggesting to you things that you could do, especially with regard to finding some kind of connection with a higher power. What did you find you were most resistant to in what she was asking you to do? I took on board everything she did. She took. She advised、mm-hmm. me to do,、mm-hmm. but because we weren't working together, one step at a time. Right. We. It wasn't. There was no structure to it. So,、hmm. for example, when I relapsed, I I rang. She was the very first person I told,、mm-hmm. and she said, "You know, get to a meeting." I can't remember what else she said.、Mm-hmm. So you see, I I didn't resist her advice. It's just that her advice. While she was doing her program with her sponsor,、mm-hmm. I wasn't using my sponsor very well,、mm. and、um, I was not formally in a sponsor-sponsy relationship with this friend.、Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. Actually, I was going to ask you about. Do you think the fact that you she never formally became your sponsor, or you couldn't refer to her either in talking to other people or admitting it to yourself that she was your sponsor, and therefore what a sponsor tells a sponsee to do, they should do? Do you think the nature of your relationship made it more difficult than it would have been had you declared her your sponsor? Yes, I do, and because we known each other before she, we came, she came into the rooms, and I came into the rooms. There was quite.、Mm-hmm. There was the relationship had a, the friendship had a different dimension, if you like. So, yes, I,、uh-huh. I think if I had never known her when I came into the rooms, and if I had said, "Please sponsor me," then yes, it would certainly have have made things better for me. Yeah, yeah. Asking someone to sponsor us is a real statement of humility, and it's an act of. Admitting something that is akin to "I need help."、Uh, will you help me? Yeah. That was always the most difficult thing for me to say. Did you have difficulties with that as well? Yeah, no, that's. I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there, Howard. I think I had huge difficulties asking for help. Yes.、Hmm. Yes.、Hmm. You know, I、hmm. think、um, self-reliance was my, you know, the way I'd I'd always gone through life since I was very young. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've you've got it in one there.、Uh, asking for help, yeah, big problem. Yeah, that that is a big problem, and I think that a lot of that grows out of the things that we learn when we're small and in our families of origin. That I know in my case with my parents, the way they parented me had me feeling as a very young kid that 
I will never ask anybody for help because I didn't, uh, what I saw in my family of origin was asking for help was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of a fractured relationship, whatever. And uh, did you feel like some of those things came out of your childhood or? Um, I, I had a great childhood. Um, my father was an alcoholic, so there was a lot of tension in the family, uh-huh. a lot of uh-huh. drama, um, a lot of us always on, you know, like a cat in a hot tin roof, always on tenterhooks because, mm-hmm. you know, because, mm-hmm. our, you know, the alcoholic's behavior is so unpredictable, as we know. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was away quite a lot with his job. But I, I grew up abroad. Mm-hmm. So all of us, when we were very small children, went to boarding school in England. Hmm. So in those days, you would just put on a plane and somebody met you at the other end and put you on a train and you went to board, you got to your boarding school and that was that. Hmm. And I think that hmm. probably makes one quite self-reliant. Yeah. But then in the holidays, you know, I could go home to some nice sunny places. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so who do you, when, when you're in that environment in a boarding school, did you do that throughout your school years? Was boarding school? Yes. Well, pretty, well, my brothers did it from the age of seven and I, I was 10. Mm. So I, I was a lot older. So who did you turn to uh, in those years of going to boarding school when people who were living at home with their parents would go to their parents or to other relatives or brothers and sisters? Who did you go to while you were in boarding school to get that kind of support? We were, I think we were allowed two weekends out of term. So a friend would always invite me to their house. Really? And mm-hmm. um, their parents were always very kind to me. And then in the holidays, mm-hmm. I'd go home and I made friends. I was very homesick hmm. the first term. Yeah. But we, we made, I made friends. Hmm. It was a happy school, actually. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. You were in a happy school situation and kind of sad about your family situation? No, not, not really. No. Not when not I really. wasn't okay. there. No. I see. Okay. I'm not sure what you mean, sad about my family. Well, I, I was just wondering whether you were ever resistant to wanting to go back to boarding school when you were at home with the family. Oh, no, ne- no, no, really? never. I used to look, I used to look forward okay. to it. Yeah. Mm. I guess if I compared that when I was a kid to what you had as a kid, I would have been envious of you because there was so much turmoil in my mm. family of origin that I probably would have given anything to be away yeah. <laughs> and be home for a couple of weeks a term as opposed to having to live at home 24-7 mm. and with the kind of family I had. So when did you first uh, encounter alcohol or when did you start drinking on your own volition? That's easy. I, I remember my first drink at the age of about, mm-hmm. I must have been 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. I was at a cocktail party with my parents mm-hmm. and there were waiters circulating with trays. Uh-huh. So, And there was an open bar in the corner of the room. Oh, no. So I'd never had, I don't remember drinking before. Mm-hmm. I just remember having that drink and I, I, it was just nectar. It was magical. It was... <laughs> And of course, I could drink as much as I liked. And when I was that age, I didn't really, you know, I woke up the next morning and I didn't have a hangover. I felt great. It was only only at a party I, I drank. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So in between, and certainly going back to school, there was no alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, hmm. I wasn't drinking full time, but every single time 
I I went out and there was alcohol around. I drank. I started first and finished last and probably had 10 glasses to everybody else's one. Hmm. I think f- from a very early age, I knew there was something wrong with my behavior. I knew that other people, they, they didn't, they didn't drink like that. And they, they talked more to one another. They were sociable. Mm-hmm. They interacted. Hmm. Whereas I didn't seem to do that. I just listened mm. and smiled and drank. So you kind of withdrew a little bit, whereas everybody else was interacting. You were yes. kind of in the background drinking, yes, huh? Yes, exactly. What kind of feeling were you pursuing with the drinking? Did you have a sense of what it was doing for you and how it was making you feel? It was making me feel, it just enabled and empowered me. It gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. It made me feel good about myself. Sure. And it was just such a glorious high. I was completely detached from reality. It was wonderful. Mm. I, I, I love it. I loved it. I mean. Yeah. Well, I think as alcoholics, we still love it, Diana. Uh, I, I think. <laughs> I didn't I think mean just, to say that in the present no, tense. <laughs> no, actually, I think the present. I think the present tense is where that feeling lives. I, I don't think it ever goes away. Mm-hmm. And I think one day at a time we keep it at bay. But it, to me, it's always there. When, whenever anybody says I'm one drink away, well, you really are just one drink away. And it's that euphoric recall that I have to be careful of because my mind will let me forget all the bad times, and it will, mm-hmm. it will, the alcoholism will have me remembering all the good times when I drank, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous thinking for me. Yes, it's very dangerous thinking. And I think that was going on a lot with me when I came into the rooms, you know, those first 10 years, I think I had far too much euphoric recall. I wasn't remembering just how calamitous the whole my whole drinking was. So from the time you started drinking until you ended up going into AA or getting sober in 2000, there are a number of years in between there. Were there moments or defining situations within that period of time that called to mind the possibility that you were having a problem or that you had a problem with drinking? Or did you just sail along during that period? What was that like for you? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I don't believe I admitted to myself I had a problem with drinking until Mm -hmm. I was in my late 30s, early 40s. And from, let's say, the age of my late teens, when I left home and I was on my own, Mm -hmm. um, or I was sharing a flat or whatever, it sort of went in stages because in my late teens, early 20s, that's when I started to get into trouble with alcohol. Hmm. That's when, you know, my behavior was just unacceptable and police were called and Hmm. lost jobs. All that sort of thing happened very quickly. But I didn't think alcohol was the problem. Yeah. And I didn't think I was the problem. Up until, say, my 30s, the real mental torture that Bill describes in the book was I was completely baffled. I didn't understand Hmm. why. I couldn't drink like other people. I didn't Mm. know I was an alcoholic. Mm. But it just sounds absurd, given my behavior and consequences. Yeah. But I really didn't know. It sounds absurd, but I think it's pretty common. I think that as alcoholics, we have a really, really tough time when we're in our cups 
drawing a connection between our behavior and the drinking. And when I can't draw that connection, I'm apt to just blame everything but that. Yeah. Yes, it is. One of the first things I heard in the rooms was, denial is not a river in Egypt. (laughs) Well, I I kept hearing this and I thought, what are they talking about? I just didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get the pun. Yeah. And then the penny dropped. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And that was me, big denial. And it was really important for me to escape from reality. Was it? And get out of my head. I, I drank to get out of my head. Mm-hmm. At that at that level, I certainly wasn't thinking that I was the problem. Mm. It, mm. it wasn't until, yeah, I was about 40, I think, that I started to mm. realize there was something wrong with my drinking. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book podcast is an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including more than 50 rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, anyplace. Search for Big Book Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you were going along in your 20s and 30s, drinking, having consequences with police or with jobs. And during that time, you didn't draw the connection to the drinking. What was there that occurred in your 40s or your late 30s that was the defining moment where you finally had the realization that, wait, this is me. This isn't everybody else. I think it was a series of it, it wasn't one particular incident. It was mm-hmm. um, in my 40s, I'd settled into this routine of drinking at night. Mm-hmm. And every single day was the same. And I tried so hard to control it. And that, I think, was the defining moment when I realized that there was something wrong. Mm. I mean, it carried on for five years like that. Did it? Wow. Day after day after day. Trying mm-hmm. to trying to get a uh, trying to understand what was the matter with me. Hmm. Were you taking that need to understand to other people around you, or to family members, or to friends, to try and gain an understanding why? No, no, I never wanted to ask for help. So you you went to try and figure it all out on your own, then, huh? Well, yes, I couldn't. I always felt that I had to present myself as, you know, smiley and, you know gung-ho and on top of everything and mm. and and managing my life well and mm. being brilliant and which I wasn't yeah. but this feeling I I had to project this this image that was not true that wasn't me that facade must have worked for you for a number of years if you kept it up that long didn't it it um, I suppose in a way I kept it up all my life but it just became far more acute when I, you know, was late 30s, 40s. Yes, I suppose in a sense it did work for me, but it did a a terrible sort of interior damage. 
as mm-hmm. my, you know, alcoholism just developed and all those alcoholic characteristics just got worse and worse and worse. The mm-hmm. anger and the resentment and the isolation and sure. And I had a job all this time. I was always good at getting jobs, mm-hmm. not necessarily very good at keeping them, but mm. I could always suit up and show up and put on my lipstick and yeah, but I think we're good at I think we're good at that, aren't we? Well, it's it's one of our great liabilities, I think. Is yes. That uh, and and in my case, it was the same way. I could carry on being an alcoholic and drug addict and still perform at work. So I was one of those I don't know you call them high bottom or or functional alcoholics. But you know, I had a, a man on the show the other day who said that one of the things the differences between people who get into AA at the end of using drugs versus people who get in there after being alcoholics with alcohol is that the drugs do a much quicker job of whipping your ass. It's very difficult to function in jobs and everything else when you're doing drugs, whereas you can, you can function for a period of time drinking and get away with it. And, uh, so what I was wondering was, were there any people in your life, friends or family, that kind of stepped in or reached into your life at any point during that those five years and said, Diana, I, we're concerned. Uh, don't you think you need to get some help? Yeah, at the end. Uh-huh. 18 months before I came into AA. Really? There was this, I didn't even know him very well. Mm-hmm. He lived close to a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And just by chance, uh, he said, oh, come around to have a drink. Um, it was one afternoon. Hmm. Oh, that's right. I've been to a wedding and I behaved like a complete. Anyway. Hmm. And this man, he said to me, all he said to me was, you're a real prat when you drink. <laughs> and that was the okay. word he used, prat. Prat. And that hmm. was only the second time somebody had commented on my drinking. But it made a far bigger impact. My goodness. Where did you take that information then? Did you mull it over in your mind yeah. or did it did it stick in your side like a thorn? What was there about that, that that had such impact? Yeah, it lodged in my head. And I think it was because I didn't know this man very well. So, and I thought, well, uh-huh. this chap, he's obviously, he's seen me. He's seen something in me that, huh. that I have suspected for a while but haven't admitted to myself so the jig is up at that point isn't it yeah the jig is up Mm. 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 do you think if you had been confronted by more people along the way you may have had that sense earlier or was it just that that was the point at which you were ready to hear it and let it continue to bug you until you got sober yeah, the latter, yes. I think at that point I was ready to hear it. I was about 43 or 44, mm-hmm. a year before I came into the rooms. Mm-hmm. In When I was 40, I'd been working with a, and a colleague commented on my drinking, mm-hmm. and I was absolutely furious. Hmm. In fact, two people commented on my drinking. Really? Yes, and I was, I was livid. So... It wouldn't have made any difference if more and more people had commented on my drinking or pointed out there was something wrong. Yeah. Because I'd carried on yeah. for another few years after that. That's what it was like in the years before I got sober. Anytime anybody would mention to me that they thought I had a problem, especially my my wife, we were newly married at the time, but whenever it was, she mentioned that she felt like I had a, a problem. And she grew up with an alcoholic father who was in and out of AA for years. So if anybody was able to look at somebody and realize that maybe they had a problem, she, whenever she pointed it out to me, it made me livid, to use your, your term. And it was like being exposed 
exposed. It was like suddenly the secret that I thought I was keeping from everybody was out in the open. And that really bothered me. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it wasn't until that really got under my skin that I f- was finally ready to maybe turn the corner. Yeah. So that happened 18 months before you got sober. Yeah. And so what were the days like leading up to your your moment of truth? Well, the moment when this woman came and took me to my first meeting. Um, yeah. They were pretty monotonous, really? you know, miserable, lonely, and pathetic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it had been. I'd come, I'd been working overseas. I came home when I was about 40, 41. Mm-hmm. Every day was the same. I had a job. I'd come home after work. Mm -hmm. I'd swing by the off-license. I never kept alcohol at home Mm -hmm. because I thought I could control my drinking if I didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So every day from then and up until Paul said to me, you're a prat, (laughs) (laughs) which it sounds such a a harmless, almost immature thing to say, but it really made an impression. He said that and then... You know, I, my life just carried on as normal, drinking every night, mm. getting absolutely, you know, obsessed. If if the bottle was just half empty, I would have to rush out and get some more. Mm. And I would just carry on and on until I either threw up mm-hmm. or just collapsed, mm. really. So did you have blackouts or, or were you able to function the next day after that? I always functioned. Mm. I, I used to... I just used to feel like hell on earth, but I I don't believe I ever phoned in sick. Hmm. I would somehow get out of bed, crawl to the bathroom, Hmm. get my dress on, get my lipstick on, and get to work. I don't know how I did it, but we do, don't we? Yeah, nobody was the wiser for it, were they? I I think there must have been people who, you know, I, I look at people and you know, don't you? There must have been people. Yeah, it's amazing how much we think we're hiding from everybody until later on they <laughs> say, boy, we knew it all along. We were we were waiting for you. You're doing a beautiful job of just kind of stitching it all together, the whole story. So you brought us back to what we were talking about in the beginning with you coming into the program in 2000 and then slipping, mm. you said, three times until 2011. Yes. Were those in the early part of that 10, 11 year period or were they spaced out the slips? It was spaced out. There was one after seven months, uh-huh. another one after three years. Uh-huh. And then the final one in March the 5th, 2011. Okay. So those those two times. Let me ask you something with regard to those slips. When Whenever those were happening to you, before you actually slipped and maybe were whatever the time was and the thinking was that was leading up to that slip, did you ever get the sense that it was all right to slip because you could come back to AA? Did that ever dawn on you at all? No. Huh. No, I never, I never, that never, ever dawned on me. Huh. I, um, I tried to remember my thinking before the slip. It was um, guilt. I remember feeling guilt. I remember knowing I was doing the wrong thing. Huh. So... Even after my first slip after seven months, AA had, if you like, worked its magic on me. Yeah. It really had ruined my drinking. Yeah. That's a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. Mm. So after the seven-month slip, how long did it take you to get back in? Oh, I got back in uh, the the following day. I phoned my friend, you know, this woman, Uh my sort of non-official sponsor 
or the woman who helped mm-hmm. me. And she was just great. Mm. She was great. Do they do tokens or medallions there? They do. I I keep one in my purse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you came back in after just a, a day or two back into AA. You move along another three years until the next slip, or is that three years from your first sobriety date? Three years until the next until slip the next from my slip. first slip. Okay. So what were you doing during that time after you came back at seven months to either try and sure up your program or repair any weak spots to your program? Or were you treating your program any differently after seven months? Yes, because after seven months... Somebody took me aside in that meeting Mm -hmm. and they explained to me that alcohol was simply a symptom. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that. Mm. I hadn't understood that before. Mm -hmm. I've been, I've been going to a lot of meetings and I'd heard some, I heard one thing that for me was truly groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was somebody in the rooms sharing that about fear and control and, you know, it was like somebody had turned a light on in my brain because mm-hmm. I, I completely understood. I identified with it. Mm. And I understood for the very, very first time at the age of 45 mm-hmm. that, yes, this had been my problem. Mm. Fear and control, always this desire to have everything, you know, the way I needed it to be so I could try and determine the outcome. Mm. That was kind of a first step uh, issue then, wasn't it? The wanting to have control when your life had actually been unmanageable all along. Yes. Step one and step two Mm -hmm. and step three, really. Mm -hmm. Not being able to let go. Mm. Having to try and control the outcome instead of understanding about turning my life and my will over. Mm. So after that slip and coming back, did you find that that self-realization or knowledge allowed you to move ahead with some kind of surrender or turning your life over? Did you did your program have the shift at that point? It didn't have the necessary shift mm-hmm. to get me onto working my steps formally and with the sponsor, no. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely a shift and there was definitely greater understanding. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes... We can be a bit hard on ourselves, us lot, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. Although I say that I wasn't really paying attention to the steps and the program, Mm -hmm. I was getting to a lot of meetings because I loved listening to other people. And I was learning so much Mm -hmm. about the program, even if I wasn't working it myself as deeply as I needed to. When you came back after that that three-year slip, was it over the same kind of things that had caused the slip at seven months? It it was to do with family. It was um, a sibling who also probably needs to be in the rooms. I I found the the home situation. My father was dead Mm -hmm. by then. Very, very difficult Mm -hmm. Incredibly difficult. Mm. Were you a caregiver at all during that time? Oh, yes. Yes, I was a big caregiver. Yes. So between 2005 and 2011, did you come right back in after the 2005 slip? Pretty much. A few days later, but it was a very... I slipped and then I was in such a bad way emotionally with this family situation Mm -hmm. I remember going upstairs and getting down my knee on my knees and asking God for you know higher power for help. Mm-hmm. 
um, because I was really, really scared of drinking again. Hmm. Um, and because I was trapped in this rather difficult situation and feeling so vulnerable. Hmm. But yeah, there was real fear going on. I, I just didn't want to drink. So where did that prayer lead you? It kept me sober and it kept me sane mm-hmm. until I was able to escape from the family mm-hmm. and the Christmas mm-hmm. period and get back to my own home. Mm-hmm. But things didn't improve between 05 and for the next five or six years. When you say improve, you mean in your life or in the family relationship? I mean emotion in my emotional sobriety. Just it didn't right. didn't really exist. Mm. I was dry for the next five years, but I was on a very steep emotional decline. Mm. I always got up and went to work, though. So mm-hmm. I didn't have I didn't have a crippling or disabling depression. I was extremely fortunate, mm-hmm. but I, I was having very prolonged periods of yeah, feeling just really miserable and unhappy. During that period of time, you were still going to regular meetings? Mm. And I Mm. used to share it in meetings as well. So I was was learning to be honest in in my shares. What kind of feedback were you getting from people who heard you expressing how miserable you were feeling, but yet uh, you you were there in AA? Did you get any feedback from people? Well, firstly, I wasn't sharing every day about how miserable okay. I felt. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I when I did, then people were always supportive. Yeah. Always gave me their numbers, always followed me up, always came up to me at the end of a meeting and mm-hmm. Yeah. In the meetings that we've been to together over the last year, Diana, uh, whenever it comes time for people to put up their numbers in the chat and everything else, I've seen you do that all the time. So it occurs to me that the same kind of thing you were getting during those five or six years from people, you are now doing for people who need that kind of support today. That's that's how it works, isn't it? So one one alcoholic talking to another and... Yeah, it is. It is. And... I get overwhelmed sometimes. In fact, I think I'm going to start weeping. I I do get overwhelmed with the power of AA and how it has just yeah. immeasurably transformed my, my way of living, my thinking, mm-hmm. my ability to do things now like, you know, caregiving that I, I couldn't do well before because I was so full of anger and resentment. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I I like most about doing these podcasts is because it gives me an opportunity to ask people about the things that oftentimes don't get shared when people tell their stories. And sometimes they get shared in bits and pieces in meetings. But that is between the time that you got sober and today, how has your program influenced the way you've lived your life in sobriety? So between 2011, when you got sober for the third and last or third and let's say most recent time, because who knows what's last for us alcoholics. But what have been some pivotal moments for you in the last 10 years that have allowed you to work a program that's more to your satisfaction than the program you'd worked previously? I got a sponsor Mm. in 2000. And when did Eleanor become my sponsor? In 2012. Mm. So a year after my my relapse in 2011. Mm -hmm. I was miserable that year, didn't drink, got to meetings, did service, but Mm -hmm. I was miserable. Yeah. And then, and this was real higher power stuff. Mm -hmm. I got to a meeting and it was after Christmas Mm -hmm. 
and I was sitting next to a Scottish man with a very broad Glaswegian accent, mm -hmm. and I barely understood a word he said. But at the very end of the meeting, we, we fell into conversation, and I must have understood something because he pointed a woman out to me in the rooms, and he said, she would be a really good sponsor. Hmm. Now, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. I didn't intend to get to this meeting. Mm -hmm. I got to it by default because I was supposed to be somewhere else. I sat next to a man who's ex who I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. But when he made this cr absolutely crucial mm -hmm. comment, mm -hmm. pointing this woman out to me, I mean, it was incredible. Mm. And I went up to her. We exchanged numbers. She became my sponsor. She's still my sponsor. She comes sometimes to the CBT meetings. I hmm. turned her up the other day about something. Hmm. That's a God moment, isn't it? It's a complete God moment. Somebody you hadn't seen before, or somebody saying something to you that influences you. I mean, you could have just listened to what he said and walked out, but something made you walk up to her. What were you feeling at that point when you, when you asked her to be your sponsor? I think I was pretty desperate. Yeah. I, I think I'd had the gift of desperation. Uh -huh. And there must have been something, even though his accent was so broad and I had difficulty understanding everything he said, there must have been something in the way he communicated to me, Yeah, which is AA again, yeah. uh, this, this very powerful way that some people have. And he'd just been put there. Sometimes I think, was he a real person? Perhaps I should have pinched him, or was he just some, something that materialized? And It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. And this sponsor, she, at that time, she had four young children. She was bringing them up on her own wow. as a single mother. Mm -hmm. She had a full-time, very demanding job. Mm -hmm. She came to my home every single night after work and took me through the big book. How wonderful is that? Yeah, every night. Wow gave up her time, mm -hmm. gave up her mothering. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So did you finally get to work? She got you to work on your fourth step and your fifth step? She got me That's to work. Great. How long did it take you to, to work through the steps once you were actively sponsored by her? Did she work? have you work through them pretty quickly? Or? I think about six months. Wow, that's great. That's great. Yeah, six months, I think. Hmm. And she had me, you know, doing exercises, writing stuff down and doing gratitude. She was very big on gratitude mm -hmm. lists. And even if I thought what I was being grateful for was silly, she said, write it down, put it down. Mm -hmm. If you've got an, a resentment, you write mm -hmm. it down, you phone mm -hmm. me up. Mm -hmm. So do you, when you're sponsoring other women, do you tend to sponsor that way, the way you were taught by her? I, I have to admit, I haven't sponsored mm -hmm. anyone in all this mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is the first 10 years of AA, when I was relapsing, mm -hmm. People used to ask me to sponsor them, hmm. but unsurprisingly, they never stayed in the hmm. rooms hmm. because I couldn't give anything away because I didn't have it I myself. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But you're available. You are available, aren't you? I am available and I'm happy to talk to people. And if someone phones me and says, can you phone so-and-so like they, they're done, I, I'm very happy to talk yeah, to that's, them. That's important. Availability, mm -hmm. I think, is 99% of the game because people do service work in a lot of different ways. And being a sponsor is one of the ways to do that. But the availability and the willingness to be a sponsor, I think, is one of the biggest parts of it. Given the fact that you had some major things happen that created a situation in which you took a drink, did incidences like that reoccur during the 
period between 2011 and right now that kind of stretched your sobriety or, or tested it? Oh, yes. Can you relate one or two of those situations that you were pulled out of the fire? Well, this is higher power stuff. This is AA uh-huh, in action okay. again, because at the point where my sponsor was put in my yeah. path at Christmas 2011, mm-hmm. um, and then she was taking me through the program and the big book mm-hmm. from then on, from you know January yes. the 1st, 2012. Mm-hmm. My mother had a very, very serious stroke mm. and and then a very bad accident. Mm. And I live in Cambridge and she lived down in the south mm-hmm. in Hampshire. And um, she'd gone into hospital and, you know, I'd gone to see her. And, she, of course, she was talking mm. gibberish because it had affected her yeah. speech. Then she'd have, had a very serious fall mm. and needed some emergency mm-hmm. surgery. So she was in hospital for two months, and I was working up here and going down there. Mm-hmm. One of my brothers, who should really be in the rooms, I mean, he he's exactly mm. like me. He, he was just creating the most awful problems, yeah. and I was terrified of him. We are, all my brothers are terrified of him. Mm-hmm. He's just really scare, a scary guy. Mm-hmm. And, I know how scary I was when I drank, yeah. um, but I hope I was never as frightening as he is. And I, I just remember being frightened the whole time that I would run into mm-hmm. him at the hospital or I wouldn't do what he had, you know, instructed yeah. me to do. Just so, that, you know, my mother was ill and was living with this awful fear. And at one point I was really afraid because I thought he was going oh. to kill me. Mm-hmm. And and that scared the hell out of me. It was really very bad indeed. Mm. And I was in close touch with my sponsor, Mm -hmm. and she was brilliant. Mm. And because of this incredible moment when, you know, she'd been pointed Mm -hmm. out to me and she was there and taking me through the program, Mm -hmm. I had a solid AA program. There was some substance to my what I was doing, working my working my program. I wasn't just messing about. Well, thank God for that. Yes. And and then I was looking after my mother for three years. And this particular individual was just thwarting my attempts at every step. Mm. So the stress was unbearable. And I still don't handle stress very well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I used to share it in the rooms. And, ah, well, here I am. And I survived that and, and the fear and... Yeah, I sort of don't really like talking about it because I know people go through dreadful things in AA and, you know, before they come in. I really want to honor and tell you how much it means to me that you're talking about this with me. What's interesting about it is that your experience with your mother is not all that dissimilar to my experience with my mother. Uh, before she passed in 2012, she she had been pretty sick. My two sisters who were out of state, but my mother was living in the same town that my wife and I lived in. And yet the two of them felt like they should manage the situation. And the acrimony and the and the vitriol that occurred because they didn't agree with the way my wife and I were handling my mother's care. And we were doing the best that we could. And I think we did a good job with it. It was very, very difficult. And that's why when I heard you talking the other day about 
about your mother, I immediately connected with that and thought, yeah, that's such a difficult thing, caregiving and, you know, still trying to work your program and trying to stay centered, especially when you've got other family members trying to take the process down a different road. Sounds to me like that's what's happened with you and your brother. Yeah. Yeah. So since that time uh, to the present day, you've stayed close to the program. You've stayed close to your sponsor. Yes. Mm. You know, I have a fairly full life and I have friends outside AA, but Mm -hmm. AA is at the center of my life. Mm. I would give up everything except I have to have AA. Yeah. It keeps me sane. Mm-hmm. It gives me structure, a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. It teaches me about myself. Mm-hmm. It gives me fellowship. You know, it, it teaches me that there's more, you know, about the higher power and there's another dimension to life. Mm-hmm. It's not all tangible material stuff. Mm-hmm. There's something that is operating out there that I have to learn this every day yeah. to hand my life and my will over. I've been looked after to this yeah. point. I've been looked after when I thought, you know, I was going to die. I, mm-hmm. When I thought my brother was going to, you know, kill me, I was looked after. So why am I, why am I not trusting the higher power all the time? I think we've shared some meetings uh, about that particular topic. And the really difficult thing for me to get my mind around is why we can look back and see how God has come through for us every single time. It's like a 100% success record when we look back and see how God has worked in our life. So why is it I go into the next situation expecting that it's going to fail? Yeah. It's, it's like winning every single race you're in over a period of time and going into the next race and feeling like you're still going to lose. Uh, I don't know where that comes from, except mm-hmm. I think that that's the vestiges of our alcoholism still firmly rooted in our minds and the sort of chief reason why we have to continue to go to meetings to get the right kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. I will say this about you, Diana, that the essence of that gratitude comes through. We're thousands of miles away. We're talking electronically right now, but... I sense the kind of gratitude that has the power to keep one sober if they continue to do the work associated with that. Mm. Yes. Gratitude. It's a really powerful tool, isn't it? Yeah. So in the present day right now, how are things with your with your mother? I know you expressed some concern the other day. Is is she doing okay? Well, you know, my mother's fine. I'm part <laughs> of the problem because I'm trying to control things too much. Okay, yeah. And every time I talk to my sponsor, she says the same thing. She says, Diana, it's not uh-huh. your show. You're not running the show. Uh-huh. It's very, very good advice. And the other day she was saying, you know, you've got to look at reality. You've got to look at the yeah. situation uh-huh. the way it is. There are things that you have absolutely no control over, especially during this period of mm-hmm. lockdown. And she sort of talks me through it and refers me to step three a lot and writing Mm. things down. That makes you more of an effective daughter, though, too, doesn't it, with your mother? Because of AA and Eleanor. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. That is a really beautiful way to wrap things up here, Diana, the fact that you've got a sponsor who is guiding you in the same way my sponsor guides me. I mean, whenever I go to him and I say, well... 
this and that's not working out. And the, one of the illusions in AA is the illusion of having control back. So we're admitting that we're our lives are unmanageable and we're willing to turn it over to a power greater than ourselves to manage and control our lives for us. But yet somewhere along the way of that management and control comes the feeling that I'm back in charge. And I'll go to my sponsor and say to him, this, this, and that's going on. And I don't know. And he says, well, have you turned it over? Have you... Uh, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God what to do? And there are times at which I snap back and I've found myself doing this at times over the years saying, oh, that's too easy. That's too easy. You know, it's too easy. You know, it sounds almost like a cop out to ask God what to do. But isn't that isn't that what's brought us the salvation we've needed all this time? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, you you are really blessed to have a, a, a sponsor like that as I am mm. to have the kind of sponsor mm. I have. And mm. um, this has just been marvelous. I, I'm, I'm so happy that. Well, Howard, I have really enjoyed this. Thank you. It, it's really helped me so much as well. Well, I want to. I just want to thank you for doing this, uh, Diana. I love you, and you're a really beautiful person. And I'm glad that you were able to share something that I know when other people hear this. It'll be inspirational. I mean, it's just, it's how sobriety has unfolded for you. Mm -hmm. But my guess is that there are a lot of other people out there who have faced or will face the same kind of things that you and I have faced. And just being able to hear about them in the context of, I can stay sober through it, mm. is a powerful message, don't you think? Yes, it certainly is. Well, again, many, many thanks for doing this today, Diana. All right, Howard. Well, many thanks to you, too. And I'll, um, I'll love you and leave you, Howard. Bye for now. Bye for now. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous World Services, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>